Brian Thompson is approaching his 50th year as a set designer, contributing to a vast number of productions and platforms globally. He is Australia's most prolific designer, creating scenic worlds to tell stories across a range of stages theatre, opera, film, musical and concert. In this companion episode of Stages, we revisit his work with Barry Humphreys and Kylie Minogue and the staging of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the musical, in theatres around the world. Along the way, he has collected a Tony Award and worked with a host of great talents. He's designed for large canvases and small spaces. Recent work ranges from the intimacy of the Old Fitz Theatre with Crap's Last Tape to La Traviata on Sydney Harbour, which alas succumbed to COVID's tragic interruption. Brian is eloquent, engaging and erudite, providing fascinating insight into the work of the designer and also anecdote from vital contributions to the arts across several decades. You've uh, Some of your work has also been on some iconic one-man shows, and you, you spoke earlier in the last episode about working on Barry Humphrey's original shows. How did that come about? How were you, had you known Barry? Or? Well, when um, B- Barry had a, um, a, a bad time when, when he was drinking a lot, and I don't think he would be, I'm not speaking out of school by saying that, um, and Harry Miller pretty much resurrected um, Barry and was part of I think a group of people who got Barry to stop drinking and and he put on a show called A Load of Old Stuff which was basically Barry doing a lot of earlier stuff um, at the same time that we were doing hair and I remember I um, I designed stuff in the foyer for that show and the set for hair was made up a lot of um, a lot of white goods that I'd got from um, Maya, uh, trade-in stuff, and it was all it was all kind of like sculpted around around the set. And the day that Barry came in to have a look, he said to me, "Now, Brian, does it all work?" <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, it didn't, and I was deflated by by that. So a few years later, when we were in London. Um, I think Barry come up. Barry was in London, and um, Michael White, whose partner at the time was Lyndall Hobbs, and their best friend was Ben Gannon, and Nell Campbell, uh, little Nell, and me would always hang around Michael White's house, and we started telling Michael he should put. Barry on, put Dame Edna on, and after a while, he decided he would do that. And it was um, a little tiny show. It was done late night in one of the theatres where Michael had a show on. So they'd take that set away, and my little set would be put in, and Barry would do his show. It was um, <clears throat> fabulously successful, which was uh, quite amazing because Barry played. I think in the early 60s he'd played Edna in London and he told me that the 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 biggest sound that came from the auditorium was the sound of the seats slapping as they went back after people got up and left. <laughs> and he he was saying that recently that, that 
he had social distancing down in the theatre. <laughs> Because Edna was born in fifty six, yeah, yeah long, the Olympics time. I, I I knew I knew of Edna through my brother, who had those first EPs, you know, the Wildlife in Suburbia. Yes. Um, with the migrant host, hostess. Yes. Um, and well, so wasn't that Edna at Carnegie Hall also? And oh, there was the, later. There the, were lots right, of, right oh, later on. Yeah, a picture of him outside outside Carnegie, Carnegie Town Hall. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had all of his albums once, but but. Um, so the show was, um, that was successful. And then the talk was that it would go to New York. So I went over there with Barry and, and we, the theatre was called Theatre 4, which was in Hell's Kitchen. And then Barry thought it, thought it was so far north of Broadway, it was in Canada, he said. <laughs> um, anyway, so we did the show. And um, there was, a, I think there was a changeover of, of um, critic or a, sta- a stand-in critic at the New York Times, and this this reviewer wrote a one man um, a, a crit a review, the headline of which this one man show is one man too many. I still got the the newspaper thing, and then went on from there to say it's not worth the the cost of an across town bus ride. It was unbelievable and then the other reviews weren't weren't that good but then if the New York Times didn't like something that was it I remember on the first on the opening night the um, the party was at Sardi's and the story was if the show was a hit because up 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 on the building above on the top floor was a news agency that would send down the 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 copies of not the actual paper but the you know how, how erroneous or whatever it was in those days of the reviews if it was a hit they'd be down really quickly if it was kind of middling or you know so so it'd take a while if it was a flop they just wouldn't come down <laughs> so on this night everyone was waiting 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 and then it got to the point where people were just saying what's well, a flop and they Don't went home. So Barry said, oh, well, let's go and find out what this is all about. So we went up in the elevator and we went in this room and there were the producers, Michael and the American producers. And I swear, if it had been a giant musical, they would have jumped out the windows. The, the, it was so down, the, the mood, and they were just slumped there. And Barry said, oh. And so Michael handed him the thing and he read it and said, oh, well, we did our best, he said. Then he left. And uh, um, I stayed. And I said, that didn't sound so bad. And, he, and Marcus said, read the rest of it. So I read the whole thing. And then I just sat down and thought, oh, God, this is hideous. And then Michael said, I don't care what happens. He's booked in, I think it was two or four weeks, whatever it was. He's going to play, he's going to play the season. And you are going to make sure that the house is full. I don't think Barry ever knew that happened because he they had a big falling out after that. But I was I thought that was really something, and so Barry did. I stayed for a week and went every night, and the audience they'd laugh and they'd laugh and then they said, "Oh, it's the worst thing I've ever seen," you know. <laughs> and so the, the the power of that that review was ridiculous, and Barry worked so hard, and it was so funny. 
There's one night where this woman was laughing so much that he brought her up on stage, got a chair, put her on the side of the stage and buried the entire show to her. And of course she was, it was one, it was the most surreal thing. There was this, this Edna doing the show to this little tiny person and we were just allowed to watch what? this happen. So things like that he did and tried, put all, all pulled out all of his genius. But it, and they'd laugh and scream and carry on, but then say, "Oh, but it's so bad, isn't it? It's not funny at all." And they'd leave because there weren't any jokes. There weren't any. You know, there, it was just Edna being ironic and 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 devastatingly observant. There, there wasn't. There wasn't what they expected, which was the gags and the punchlines and that kind of thing. Did they not recognise the character or understand what the character no, was trying to do? No, no, because that was when Edna was in a denim phase. So when she described, I mean, they just did. What's funny about that? <laughs> what's and 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 Edna, Edna saying that she'd she'd found this wonderful little restaurant that they weren't to tell anybody about called Chock Full of Nuts. <laughs> was, I mean, everything was spot on and accurate and wonderful. So anyway, but ten years later, when it was he went back and slayed him. And Did you do his big revival when he returned to Broadway? The, I didn't do the Royal when he won Tour. The Tony, right? No, I, I did um, Back with the Vengeance, which we did in San Francisco and then New York, and that was fabulous because that was the audience was full of people who adored Edna. And you just thought back to the, up in Theatre 4 where they just... Didn't get it. Didn't get it yeah. at all. Your career has largely been as a set designer. Have you ever ventured into costume? Uh, I used to do the early shows. I did, yeah, I yeah. did hair in Melbourne. I just, got a lot of, I just got them to get lots of old curtains and floral curtains and things and... And said Marie to Harry, von Trapp. I don't want. <laughs> there won't be any denim in the show, Harry. Anyway, but at the, by the end of the week, they're all in their own stuff anyway. And Superstar went in London when they fired the costume designer. I just went out and bought all this stuff from markets, and right. it wasn't wasn't good. I just didn't have that when when I worked. So I did all the ones, as you like it, Arturo Ui, all those ones I did originally. I did all the costumes because that's what you did. Just did. But I didn't have the, I didn't have the knowledge of of fabric, and I didn't have the skill. And when I work with with good costume designers like Sue Blaine and and Maria, and you, you just thought, wow, this is perfect. Yeah. So describe for me the process of of collaboration with a a costume designer, because you're both designing the same world, but yeah. they both they need to complement each other. Well, I, I think I think probably the. Well, look, it depends on whether. I mean, I've I've never done I've done one show where the director had an idea, and that was Neil Armfield with a Billy Bud that we did. But when we when we worked up the idea and took it over to Wales to Cardiff, it turned out they couldn't afford it. <laughs> it was, and I remember saying to Neil, "Well, we've got three options: we just walk away, or we we say to." Cardiff and it was a joint production with Opera Australia we get another £100,000 from Opera Australia or we thro throw this all away and redo it 
and we decided to do that and that's where we got that movie platform that was I made that up we had a at a table I just cut a bit of cardboard up and said let's do and that's what we did so normally and it's not not we took you talk about stuff like and then I just go away and think about and come up with a concept or, or, or an idea which I'm always happy to have <laughs> it's ridiculous um, remember when we I did that play called My Zinc Bed I said we've got to do a tin set Neil <laughs> it took, took a long time till we got to the point where he agreed that was the way to, and that's what we did but so then then the the other the I think once you've set out where the world might be that's when they come in and 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 start work do you talk about color palettes and no it's it's really weird i i always i never think i always think in black and white when i'm just like i always make what's called a white card model i'm i'm thinking i always think spatially at first um knowing that uh, that it won't just be a bit of white you know like, oh sometimes it is but or black or whatever um no it's, it's I, I kind of want to get the the three dimensions of it um happening first of all then a, a, and t- to create a world in which when the actors go in when the performers go in in their costumes it's complete so you leave like say doing a show like Priscilla um, I could have gone a lot further in, in terms of outrageousness for the for the design but that Priscilla's about the you know about Tim's costumes and, and I had to be a, a background to that and I was perfectly happy to do that and often I'll try and do things that don't that allow the performers to well, as they should be, to be the the total focus of what you're doing. Are you limited in your the ideas that you can bring to a set design with the budget that you're given? Are you, is that a constant... Are you good at working within a budget? Or do you just aim for the sky and then see um, what's permitted? <laughs> well, they go together, I suppose. I mean, if, like, if, say, working down at um, that... that Crap's last tape where we had nothing, and it, we just went, went and found that stuff. And then we, I think we we did we paid a scenic artist to come in and you know make the filing cabinets look more bashed up than they were. We found them, um, but I think it it's now they just go together. I, I never I never th- I never think oh this will be way too expensive. I just think somehow we'll find a way of doing it um, but I, I guess and, and that's that's if you're just doing one kind of one 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 set you're not doing things where you need hundreds of scene changes and that kind of stuff your sets often feature a dominant object which is iconic and it might be a, a billboard a portrait letters a chandelier a giant lipstick yep <clears throat> Is that? Do I'm you always begin, looking, would you begin with an object? I just begin. I, I try and find an idea. Well, in the lipstick. In the case of the lipstick that's in Priscilla, 
<coughs> I actually had that in Boy from, from Oz because we, we did a rainbow parade and that and the producer said oh no a lipstick that's way too gay and I thought it's what? the boy from Oz way too gay for Peter Allen <laughs> so I, I was doing them at the same time I just went and popped in the model of Priscilla <laughs> and that led Waste to Waste not what not well it's a good idea it's not going <laughs> to don't throw it away a lot of things do come back you'll, you'll think of something and think oh no I can't do that and then you'll think of it and bring it back for something else I mean what what I'd like to do in a way and it's not, not at all possible I'd love theatre audiences of today to see what we did 50 years ago or 40 years ago or 30 years ago because I think there's an awful lot of stuff there that would really really be appreciated by today's audiences but we can't do that um, which in a way I mean I'd love everyone to have seen that superstar um, and have seen the hair that we did in, in Melbourne and have seen the Rocky the, ori the original original Rocky um, but that can't happen so it's that that's sad but it lives in the memory I suppose and that's why films are quite good because if you've done a film like Rocky it's there forever and in some ways, um, they are more theatrical, those designs of 30, 20 years ago. Yeah. Because you're limited with the resources that you have to sort of, like, for example, put a bus on, on the stage. Yes. How fiendish was it to create that? Well, we had, we had, a, we had, a, we had a, a big truck on the stage in the Tripani Opera. Right. <laughs> the the centrepiece was, a, was a, um, an old red truck. The sides opened up and had had a Salvation Army band on top, and it revolved. The back, the back had doors that opened that was the prison where he got put in prison. He got hung on the front. We put a scaffold on the front of it. <clears throat> on the side of it, there was a kind of a a billboard which, with a thing, rolled across with the story of Mac the Knife, the, the shark. Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so so I sort of had done the the big vehicle, but because. That um, at that time, the the first shows in the drama theatre were done in rep. There was a David Williamson play, the Strippany Opera, and I think there was a Shakespeare. They had to, because and there's no there's no room in that theatre to store stuff. The bus, the, the truck, you could for all the other shows you could see the it just sitting there up there because there's no height in the in the flying, so you couldn't get rid of it. Because um, that was the idea at the, at the beginning of in the opera house was that that would always be in rep. You'd always have three shows, shows like, going at yeah, once, yeah. which which the opera do, um, but um, the the drama there's, you can't get in there. You can't even getting stuff in there is impossible anyway. So yeah, um, but I, if I can find a, if if there's an idea that can then then turn into a thing, then that that's where I'll always aim for the Priscilla bus caused some problems though in previews didn't it, it did. to get it working <laughs> it was that in the the, the the mechanics of it the hydraulics the the computer software that controlled it all of it yeah. the the first thing I when Gary asked me to do it the first question I asked was do we do we need a bus do you as a producer because you do realise it's going to be really expensive, it's going to be really tricky. 
Um, and we'll, we'll face a lot of hurdles. Yes, I want a bus. Fine, okay. Because I was quite happy to do a production without a bus. I always thought there was a way of doing it in a club or something with, you know, really in a tacky way with, with kind of cardboard cutouts and things like that. No, no, he wanted a bus. So we got a bus. We cut the front and back off it and then we put the other bit in. And the thing that we, the thing that we couldn't work out was how to, how, well, to see inside for the interior scenes, as it were, and how to change colour. So, and we talked about flip panels and this and that, and and I remember I was actually just in a bus going down Oxford Street, and I was thinking, and I just looked out, and I mean, not that Oxford Street's Times Square or anything, but there's a few lights there, and I just thought we just have to do it by lights. That's how we do everything else in the theatre, isn't it? So, I went to them down top to them and said, well, we've got to do it by lights, and that's what we did. And then when we went to London, I realised that the bus could then get a character if we used pixels, if we actually used little LEDs and made the whole bus into a, a, a brick of a screen, which was fabulous. But I mean, that technology, by the time we, we used it, it was pretty ancient anyway. So if you could do it again with the slickest LED, it would be so fabulous. Um, but... Because that was a free-ranging bus, it wasn't in tracks or guides or anything. We had we had communication problems between the drivers in the bus and the and the technology. And then I think the big problem with the batteries um, was the um, it wasn't stepping down the power; it was stepping up the power. And we had we had the had have these things called inverters. And because as we were doing the um, the tech rehearsals, the um, the bus never got a chance to be the batteries to be, you know, plug it in and, and recharged, the inverters just finally gave up. And we had to locate I think there there were some oh far flung parts of the world. So we had to get these things in. So we just did the show without with the bus just static for a while. And that that was pretty heartbreaking. I mean, the the tech time was so horrendous. But very very fortunately, we had we had a director and a producer who were looking at the end goal rather than the nightmare of the moment. Yeah. I think if we hadn't had that, it would have been hideous. But in Simon and Gary, we had people who really really. Um, we knew where we had to get to. And we knew we'd get there eventually. <laughs> Is there much work from your perspective as a designer uh, when the show goes on tour and you need to recalibrate the set design for different spaces? I mean, I imagine that the palace in London was... Oh, nightmare, yeah. ...was much smaller than what you'd played at the Lyric. Well, five... It, it, well, because I didn't superstar there, when, when Gary said, we can get the palace, I said, oh, do you have to? But it's also got a rake stage. It's got a permanent rake stage, and that's heritage. And then what it is, it's underneath it, is a giant timber structure that goes down to the old Fleet Stream River. So there's like, there's like, must be 15 metres of nothing underneath. Oh, it's all little, little walkways and things. And if someone drops something from the stage 
there's the delay that you hear a splash. And it goes, oh my goodness. It goes <laughs> in the water. So, and I remember when in the palace when Jesus got crucified, a lot of people could only see his feet. So I said, I said to um, Gary, Gary, it, it really isn't good for sight lines. Um, and it's got the rake stage. Anyway, we, we did do it. And it, it was okay. And what we did, we just, we just, I just had to compress everything and re, remake it. And then we finally, we got to the point where the last tour that came here is probably one that would fit in most theatres. We'd we'd done the show in Korea. Um, then I think it went to Hong Kong, Thailand, South Africa. Then it came. So we we got to the point where we had one that could move around. Do you? I mean, it's played all around the world. A show like Priscilla. Do you have to go to every city where it's being mounted and, and uh, oversee that, or you have a staff? That I usually do because I want to. Yeah. Because well, part, part, of, part of the joy of doing what I do is I've seen the world through the shows I've done. Um, I think I've only ever once, last year went, when I went to Iceland, I've only ever once said I'm going to this place because I want to go there. Not because I'm doing a show there. Mm. But everything else has been a complete bonus to go to these places and just say, oh, I would never have... So many places I would never have gone to. So that's, yeah, that's I like Priscilla going past now. Yeah, it's Priscilla. <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully Priscilla will get more of a life. I and mean, I, th- I think I think it took a while for it to be developed into a into a really smart, good show. But I think um, I think it was when. And but I think when we brought it back last year, I don't think people were weren't interested. I think the Priscilla had moved on. But there are other places in the world where it hasn't, so. 1996, John Lithgow presents you with a Tony Award. Yes. A Broadway Award for Best Set Design for The King and I. Tell me about that moment. Well, it wasn't John Lithgow, because I think that something would... Some part wasn't of it, it John Lithgow? Yeah, but... I, but I that, looked at the... That uh, was in the pre-record. He, that right. Was, it was... Um, I don't know. I can't. All I remember is we've been nominated. Yeah. Um, Roger, myself, Donna, Murphy, the direct, and, and revival, and best revival. Yeah. So on the night, I went along. I was sitting there, and what I noticed was that the cameras in the aisles would always be there in front of the person who was nominated was winning, winning win. right they'd all rush because I think they only showed photographs of the people right maybe they anyway and when mine came up there was no camera and I thought oh I haven't won it so there were, I had two thoughts one was being devastated because I really wanted to win that the other was being so relieved that I wouldn't have to go up on stage and then suddenly this in this mad panic, this camera rushed down. So on the video, the reason I look so shocked is because I just didn't, I thought it wasn't going to happen. And it was, so I went up on stage, got it, walked off stage, they grabbed it because they only have a couple of them. And then I went across the road back to Sardi's and there was um, 
Linus and Manelli um, Bernadette Peters and who's the blonde one from Hello Dolly what's it Carol Channing, Channing. <laughs> and suddenly I was with these and they were my best friends and, and Bernadette was like oh did you know Peter Allen he was oh he's uh, he's a fact and, and and Carol Channing I put my arm around Carol she had like a steel corset on right. that was holding just hold her up hold her up <laughs> but it was and then I walked from walked from there to the party with Bernadette Peters where the whole streets are all blocked off and there's crowds and, and she's they adore her I mean it's stunning it's, just, it's like a royal I was like I was with the Queen of Broadway and she goes and stops and talks and write you know does things fabulous and there's one night I was in I was meeting someone at the theatre where King and I was on and I was on the other side of the street and all the all the, the line of people started applauding I thought oh I wonder who's here and it was for me and it was which is stunning and I went over and, and it's in that little in that little world you could be walking down the street and they'll just stop you and say oh I saw it last night I think it was wonderful and it really is a community of people who so care about the theatre probably more than I do um, and who really celebrate the success and having been on the other side when you have a flop it's not a very nice place to be when Rocky Horror opened in 1975 and got really really bad reviews um, you know, I've seen I saw better things in the village 10 years ago etc kind of reviews and all the coffee shops and things where we used to go where they'd all have pins and posters and everything and know what you wanted and who you were same people didn't know who you were all the pins are gone all the <laughs> extraordinary so I've known both and I think the thing to, the thing I learned about that is not to be too down when it when it doesn't work and not to get too crazy and up when it, it does work and that was the so it's kind of good to have had both extremes did more doors open for you on on Broadway after no, that I, I met with various people but it was the same thing where they were really I think they probably thought oh he does he, he does um, these uh, Asian things, you know, kind of thing. And I, and I just, it was really weird. I met quite a few people and I met agents and they'd say, well, you know, you'll need to start from, you know, like literally from the bottom again. I just wasn't interested in that. There was one, one director who has a theatre out at um, St. Louis. So I went out there and he runs this, it's a summer theatre, an outdoor theatre. The place like 20,000 people. And he wanted to do a production of White Christmas. And he'd been given all, all, the, all the music and everything. So I went and, and he said, but, but uh, I want to do it first of all in London. I want to do it in the, what's that tiny theatre in the hotel, what's that called? Oh. Not the Don Ma. No, no. no. It, it, it's a little theatre in an Art Deco theatre, Art Deco hotel. Oh, what's it called? Oh, and it's tiny. 
anyway, he wanted to do it there. So I did a design for that, but the money fell over or something. So that, that was the only thing. That was the only... No, there wasn't any... any um, and I, I suppose if I'd stayed there, if I'd stayed in New York and... and but I think I would have been... I mean, I've been very lucky in that I've always done things I wanted to do. I don't know how I'd cope with doing... having to do stuff. Probably not very well, so... Yeah. <laughs> The King and I starting in Australia, of course, and then playing Broadway, and then the London Palladium. So yeah, it's inhabiting different size theatre spaces again. Well, they're all different. Yeah. So how do you put a Thai palace on stage? Well, with what happened, I met. I was with a friend in a restaurant, and I met the director, and I think they, I think Frost, had other designers on board to do it. Had you worked with GFO before? You, you were on? No, I don't think no. I had. Right. Had I? No. I mean, I knew, I knew John. Um, but so the director said, um, would you be interested in doing The King and I? And I said, oh, I, I don't think I'm a Rodgers and Hammerstein kind of person. And Just like you thought you went to Shakespeare. No, right? that's right. Not, yeah. And then I said, but I had been, interestingly enough, I'd been doing, I did a series of films and television things up in Thailand and Malaysia and uh, Sri Lanka and India and stuff. So I, and I said, oh, I love, I love Thailand. Um, and I said, but you know what? I could take you to Thailand and show you how it should look. And that's what we did. So I took Chris Renshaw, the director, to to Bangkok and, and showed him everything. And I said, that can be this and that can be that. And then it was just a matter of... And I always thought if I could put a little tiny bit of that on stage, it would be wonderful. And um, it was such a joy to do that, to that, do that show for me because it wasn't... It was completely out of my... Well, I don't know about a comfort zone, but it was, it was something, it was such a challenge. Because there were so many people who didn't, didn't want me to do it. Rob Brookman from Adelaide, I'm happy to say that, didn't want me anywhere near it. And I thought, well, fuck you, I'm going to do this. And that's, it's quite nice to always have that kind of challenge. And so um, when apparently it was, there was a, a guy who worked for uh, the company that has all the rights to the to the music musical, and Ted Chapin's the head of that. So the, I think one of the bookers was out in Australia, and he saw the production. He phoned Ted and said, "I've just seen a King and I with a Ming red floor." And he says, "It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen." So Ted. And Mary Rogers came out to see it and loved it. We must take this to, to Broadway. And we were, we were in giant theatres, right? We were in the, the State Theatre in... In, um, in Melbourne. Melbourne. And QPAC, I suppose. QPAC. And yeah. we, were, we were in... The, well, we were in the Mad Sheer where we squashed it in, but we were in the big one in Adelaide. So I went over to New York and with one of the people from the Dodgers, the... the who were going to be the American producers, we went round to all these theatres. And they were all ridiculously small. It was stupid. And I'd said, no. Then we got to the last one, the Neil Simon. 
and I could tell that there was this desperation that that we could do it. And I said, look, it it really would be a real, really hard because they were going to bring it all over. They weren't going to re redo it. Um, but if you let me decorate the entire theatre to the balcony, because I have to the elephants, because the elephants are taller than the stage than the proscenium. So if we have a whole lot of those elephants on stage, you'll barely see, you know, an elephant's eye kind of thing. Ah, oh, they're saying, ah, oh. oh yeah, we can do that. So that's what I did. I decorated the entire. So when people went in to the theatre, they went into a Thai temple, and it was fabulous. And and every day the producers say, "You finished yet?" No, no, no. no. <laughs> You've seen the directors. We've got it. We were painting everything and putting gold mirrors and, oh, it's wonderful. But because they, in in that time, probably the same now, if you want to go and look at a stage, you've got to hire a fireman, a stage doorman, yeah. a this and a that and whatever. So there was a, um, a, a ghost light on stage, luckily, and I'd clock that it was about what size it was so I did all the dimensioning from this ghost light because I couldn't couldn't get onto the stage yeah. and measure it yeah. and luckily it was fairly accurate so the giant elephants and things which you saw out in the house and then inside you just saw bits of them because you couldn't see the whole thing but it and we had to I mean it is miraculous when you'll see a Broadway show and you'll think there's got to be a car park to get that much stuff, and you go back, and it's you're lucky if it's that. Yes, it's and what they do, everything flies, tracks, goes up walls, um, and they do it by what's called a paper tech, where they sit down with the plans and little bits of paper, which are the thing, and they say, well, that'll have to break in half, and that can go there, and that, and, and that's what you do, and it's um, it's amazing. And with Priscilla, the same thing. We, we were in, in the Palace Theatre on Broadway, which is a dump, and very, a little tiny stage. But they managed, we managed to make it all work. But nothing is, nothing when it goes into the wings is as it is when it comes on stage. In, the, you know, the King and I had that wall that came out? Yep. Well, when that, that used to go off, and one piece would get picked up and then tracked as it went off stage. I mean, it is... I I went backstage once and I stood there and I watched it and I was just in awe of how these things get done. Even though I knew technically how it was happening, to see it. Because you've got hundreds of people buzzing around and, and all this is happening. It's an astonishing machine that's happening on stage. Wonderful. Can we talk about a couple of uh, musicals that you designed for the Sydney Theatre Company? First of all, Chicago. Now, that had been a not a great success on Broadway in its original no. run. And then Richard Ware had acquired the rights to do yep. an original Australian production. Yep. Do you have any knowledge of that Broadway production? Or I how saw the English about? production. Right. Okay. And it, was, it, was, it wasn't good. And I think it was a lot to do with the staging. There were things like there were traps in the floor and a trap would come up and up would come one of the characters. And it just seemed to me... I said to Richard, look, look, let's do this. 
let's do let's send in a prism and let's do it all in black and white okay and what's and, and I asked I asked the question of Richard Roger Kirk Ross Coleman what's the sexiest thing we could do in this show mm, chatted I said I think a lot of fabulous women in underwear playing pool would be a pretty good <laughs> so that's so we had the we had the pool table shaped like a piano in the middle and the opening scene they were playing pool and the girls were all over the cages and it was a much better production than the one that floated out of Broadway although that was pretty brave because it was just a band and a curtain yeah and what about company uh, the, the Sundown musical. Well, Company was... The, that the, was very much influenced by a, a pop art Yeah, well, that was, that was... I said, well, let's say Company is a department store <laughs> and that all of the locations are like a department in a department store, in the furniture department. So you'll have the pop, pop section, you'll have the op section, you'll have the, um, you know, the Jackson Pollock section... And that's the way that it, it... So that's how we did it. So everything had price tags on it. All right. And each scene featured a different... A different style object. of... Yeah. So the pop art scene had a Coke bottle uh, fridge that was about as high as your fridge and a hamburger... Um, what do you call it? Bean bag and things like that. The, the op art one had... Everything was like, you know, psychedelic... Um, black and white paintings and the whole opening set was the shop window with the word company with all of them um, with shop dummies and then the shop dummies went away and they were replaced by the cast so Bobby walked along looked in walked, kept, kept going came back by the time he came back the cast were there and went up and that was the birthday party it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Yeah. I had a travelator, so everything was travelating on. It was. It, I thought it was a really smart production, and fabulous performances. And the other, the other one that um, I really loved was um, uh, who? What's it called? How to succeed in business without really trying, and that was all. That was all kind of pop art as well. A big a white set in false perspective and. I had revolving panels. Yeah. But um, I'd use those little revolving revolving panels in um, in um, Death in Venice, the opera, where it was a set shaped like a right angle, and these half half curves came out of the wall, so that you could suddenly populate the set, almost like in a film. Does opera require a different approach? Um, is there a consideration of acoustics? Or, yeah. yeah. Well, I I think I always try and with with Death in Venice, I made sure because that, that was a box, and it was all plywood and it was covered with gauze, um, and I was and I talked to the singers. I'd ask the singers, and they said, "Well, I feel really comfortable being that far upstage because I can, I can feel it reflecting off the off the walls." And then we, we did catch a cabanova at the opera house, which had a ceiling. And what happened with the ceiling was the full width, the full depth of the entire opera theatre, and it 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 changed 
changed angle at the back so that at the end there's the there's the kind of moaning chorus and we were the idea was that the ceiling would come down at the back and as it came down the chorus would down steps not seen the volume would increase and we teched it with a singer so we had a singer and we'd say go right up the back and don't change your volume and then we change the roof all right to get to get fine tune to fine tune and remember the the conductor was um Macaris, and he was really cranky he was saying it's not going to work it's not going to work get the chorus up i want the chorus up on stage i want the upper stage now anyway we did do it and it was fabulous because it was like this this kind of moaning and as we tilted the roof down the volume increased <laughs> wonderful so that that is fabulous doing something like that but we nearly didn't do it we were r- right at the end of our tech time and Giles McCarris was was going crazy <laughs> now Miss Minogue how, how do you approach designing a, a concert tour for Kylie Minogue <laughs> I mean. so I got this call uh, look Kylie's she's not you know she's lost a record contract she's not got much, you know, she's broke. I mean, down to her last 10 million or whatever. Um, <laughs> she's going to do a little, a little intimate, to, in fact, it's going to be called Intimate and Live. Um, she doesn't want much, but um, would you be interested? Oh, yes, I'd like to do that. Were you a fan of Kylie Minogue? I was a fan of Kylie from Neighbours. Yeah. And I quite, I, I, I was intrigued by the way that this little girl who who look isn't the best singer in the world is not the best dancer in the world is not the best certainly not the best actress in the world has has made a miracle out of out of because back in the rocky horror days we myself and richard hartley tried to do the same thing with little nell we did a lot of recordings with her and tried to create this kind of character which never worked but um, with Kyla, I was thought it was fabulous how she'd manipulate her or whoever did it for her. Um, so yeah, I'd love to do it. So I went to meet her down at the hotel in the rocks, and all the curtains were drawn. And I thought it was dark in here. Kyla, and she said, "Oh, well, the reporters—they're all out there on the trees." Ah, I hadn't seen any reporter anyway. And there was this this guy, this. He's got a little stud sitting there eating hamburgers and stuff. And she showed me. Um, I'd brought her. I my design was a big giant K, like a big sweep of a a cloth with a K, and so it looked like a little kind of TV set. But it would be, it would it could go anywhere, and it would seem to fit the bill for, you know, it was going to be a big massive concert. But then she showed me a sketch she'd done. And I said, oh, gee, Carly, that, that looks like um, we can make that into an Inca temple. And you could be an Inca princess with feathers and stuff. And she, I could tell she was. So she, she got her pen and she said, oh, or maybe your K, she drew a K on the side. I still got these drawings. Maybe your K could go there, down there. And I said, well, actually, Carly, I think it should go up there, don't you? And that's how. So when we got into the theatre, um, she said, oh, Brian, it all looks a bit grey. I said, well, we're glittering it tonight. Next day, in, in rehearsal, she's going... 
Oh, with feathers. <laughs> no, no, with glitter. Glitter. <laughs> Hadn't got to the feathers yet. <laughs> and she said, oh, I said, well, Carly, you asked for it. <laughs> but the funniest thing, the best thing was, in rehearsal, she was in a, a, just doing the music with um, that wonderful musical guy, Chong Lim. So Chong starts this piano riff, and I thought, oh... That's Dancing Queen. She's going to do Dancing Queen. Then changed it to, oh no, she's not going to do. And then back to, and then she did Dancing Queen. And I thought, oh, this is just heaven. And I, that was when I noted that for the Olympics, Kylie would be doing Dancing Queen. And I would do anything to make, and I did, to make that happen. And it was like perfect. Kylie Minogue, ABBA. <laughs> Dancing Queen. How perfect. I mean, what's not Australian about that? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and I, I, I thought it was heaven. She was, and, and she's a really, she's a tough little nut and a really hard worker. And I was working with, with um, the sister, Danny, Danny, on Greece at the same time. And uh, I thought to myself, I can't imagine there's many people who worked with are working with the with the Minogues at the same time <laughs> because we were doing Greece and she was in Greece and she had by the door of a dressing room she had a stack of of signed photos they're very organised and Kylie's mum Carol makes all the dresses <laughs> fabulous like this wonderful little family business and the girls they love each other so um because I went to a Mardi Gras with, they were both at, and we were up on the top of this building, and with Kylie and Danny, and I thought, these, these girls don't fight. <laughs> Good pals. But it was, so then, um, yeah, that then, so for, for, the, for the Olympics, I was, no one, Rick Birch was dividing up everything, you know, um, and in the opening, he'd say, well, do you want to do whatever it was and I said no I'm not really interested in that and he finally said look you just do the party at the end you do the closing okay fine okay and I was left on my own because they weren't interested in that everyone the whole focus was on the opening everything was on the opening 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 so we were this, we were in a train carriage out at um, uh, Everly me and my department and, I had, and I'd gotten Reg Mombasa involved and few other people and so I was coming up with um, a, a, the idea was it was going to be Edna and Kylie and I talked to Barry about it and he wanted it all to be about the Y2K bug <laughs> and he wanted a giant bug to come up over the state so we were working all these things and um, so Edna was going to arrive in a huge, the hugest stretched gold hold you can imagine, and then come out through the roof, and then one of those Qantas um, you know, steps were going to oh, come over, and Edna would come down, and then she'd go into the crowd, and then the double was going to fly up and go over to where the Prime Minister was and land there for a bit, then come back, and I think pick up Jimmy Barnes, or something like that anyway. Um and then Barry pulled out. He called me up and he said, oh, I won't actually tell, I won't say what he said because, anyway, he just didn't want to do it. 
and uh, but Barry, we don't have. That's the show. <laughs> anyway, so then we had our meeting finally, and they said, "Well, we've got ten thousand athletes. Um, we can't afford to put them in the stands, so they're going to be on the field of play. So you don't have. You've you've got the track. We're not putting down a, a cloth because the marathon ends. So any ideas that I had of of grandeur were, were falling off the table um, and I just said well can I have a bit of room in the middle yeah yeah you can have a stage in the middle and you can have, you can have the track I said well we'll just do a parade let's just do a parade let's just do a Mardi Gras let's just do because Rick, Rick's brief to me was he wanted the biggest backyard barbecue Aussie barbecue ever so with that in mind and I said well let's just let's just do a parade of how we entertain ourselves of, of, of how we like to enjoy ourselves. And so then we, we started um, to um, go through, you know, that it might be the BGs, it might be ACE, and everyone was saying no. ACDC, no, unless we're top of the bill. Well, there's no bill because it's not, it's not, a, it's not a show. Oh, and then BGs, no. And we designed, we designed all these. So our process was literally design something oh they're not doing it okay next what do we do now we were this close to having a hundred Rolf Harris's doing <laughs> Jake the Pig I mean that, it was really getting so desperate that's when pyjamas pajamas, but bananas in pyjamas I mean god I mean it really was it was it was a parade of legends wasn't it, it was a, yeah um, Greg Norman, Greg Norman, Priscilla, yeah, Kylie, yep, bananas in pajamas. Um, well, that's what it became. Yeah, but a lot of the legends just didn't want to do it. Paul Hogan, Hogan, that's right. He was on, he was on the hat, big the hat, crocodile yeah. under hat. Yeah. yeah, so it was. Um, and then there was um, there was talk about having a globe of the world in the centre, and, and there's been a lot of talk about um, we could we could. Um, we had a copter already, and oh, well, you can't because we had all these wires. Because there was meant to be a lot of flying stuff that Reg designed that got cut because it was too windy. Um, he had a big fly, and he had a big, you know, his football serpent was going to yep. come up one side, and then something else. Oh, the kangaroo, you know, the kangaroo yep. with the harbour bridge. That was going to a massive. These things were huge, and we made them all, but we couldn't use them because of the it was too windy on the night. But um, and I, I'd, I'd been, I knew exactly how to do the globe, and that was to do a dodecahedron. But, but I was like thinking, oh, no, I can't do that again. I've done that. I can't do that again. And, and but that was that was seventy three. I know. To, compared to I know. 2000. But still, I didn't want to repeat myself. Right. You know, okay. I didn't want to. And then for for almost two weeks, I sat in all these meetings. Oh, we could try this. We could try that. And I knew exactly how to do it because it can also go flat. So finally, I got, um, I had to get the director into a, a private room, showed him what I could do, because they like to think it's their idea, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so then I went, well, I was over in London doing The King and I at the Palladium, and I was meant to go to this, the biggest rock and roll builder in the world, somewhere in 
France or somewhere like that, um, to talk to them about how we would engineer this. Because by its nature, you can if it's flat, if you pull it like that, it can pull the rest of it up and form a ball. And then if it's got the right hydraulics and stuff, you could lift it up. But they'd found a ride, they'd found a carnival ride that they thought could it could be adapted to, and that's what it was. Mm. But on, on the on the day of the we only had one day rehearsal. Um, in in the it was the day of the of the of the closing and I'd been told that the dodecahedron had been damaged on on the way to the stadium and it wasn't gonna it was just gonna sit there flat. And I was so devastated. So completely like fuck. And um we 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 tried to do a rehearsal with the Cupid dolls, and all their dresses kept blowing off, and, and it was it was so chaotic, and so um, everybody was just you know after the you know the thing had stopped on the on, on the at the opening. Yes, it was everyone Kathy was Freeman. thinking, oh yeah. no, it's all it's all come now, it's all going to be on this night. So um, I um, went with a friend. Because it, it was um, it was a dry um, the big green room thing it was a dry dry thing, um, but there was a big party we knew were somewhere on. So we turned our accreditation around and went into this party. And we went in and there was all these people with infinity on their thing. You know, there's Kissinger and the the president of this and Howard. Everyone was there, and we just um, hit our accreditation <laughs> and wandered in had a few drinks which you know ah oh, felt a little bit better then I looked we looking at was right overlooking the stadium the field and I su- started to see the dodecahedron slowly shudder it came up and then it stopped and then it, it went up and it revolved and it was the feeling of relief was so astonishing and all, there were a few people dotted around in the stadium who were cheering and oh it's fabulous so it did happen <laughs> Brian we, we, we've hardly scratched the surface of your uh, incredible uh, repertoire and contributions to theatre over 50 years congratulations on your golden jubilee <laughs> which you. is imminent uh, what, what would you say is the most satisfying thing that you've you've achieved um in telling stories in design in, in that time? Well, I suppose I always think back to those, the really early ones, that um, because for me personally then, it was always a delight that I could do that and that that could happen and that I didn't know actually what, how to get to the next step but knew that we would. So I think the superstars and Rocky and, and 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 that the hair I did and since then I, I the operas on the harbour have been it's been a fabulous challenge and when I was working on the bridge I used to do the you know the heart and all those things the New Year's Eve New Year's yeah. Eve yeah that was pretty pretty fabulous um, and Priscilla I think I think things where the challenge I think the things where I've started out without a clue as to what I was going to do, and then 
I always, and I will always think, and I'll say this, you know, I'll say, you know, in six months, the show will be on. We will have come up with all of the ideas. We will have developed it. <laughs> and it'll be happening. And I always think, ah, just think. Now it's July. In January, it'll all be done. And that's been the process that has always gotten me through. Because right. you know it's going to happen. I, I don't, even though there were times, certainly on Priscilla and on Superstars, and even on that Olympics thing, where for a minute your spirit's almost broken to the point where you think, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And in a way, it sort of happened this year with... Um, because I'd added a new element to, to Traviata and they built it all and it lights up but it hadn't lit up, it never lit up only I've lit it up in Photoshop but, but hopefully we might get a chance to do it next year I'm hoping that you know, the rumours are that it's going to be done so I hope to do that and that for me would be in my, in my 50th in actually golden year would be kind of the that would be the nice candle on the cake for me. Terrific. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that was brilliant. That was brilliant. Did you have a good time? Yes, I did. Yeah. No, it's fabulous. I, I like, I really would love to do my career backwards. You know, like do the best of it so that people in the next 20 years can see all the things we did 50 years ago. <laughs> Join me next week for episode 142 of the Stages podcast when my guest will be Tony Taylor. He has navigated a triumphant career as an actor and playwright and was an original member of the legendary Pram Factory Theatre Collective in Melbourne. Tony is candid, reflective and full of joy as we traverse productions of The Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby, The Hills Family Show and The Venetian Twins and also pinning his riotous comic play The Popular Mechanicals. That's next time on Stages. My guest, Mr Tony Taylor. As always, I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. Keep well, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time.